It is a delight to be with you this morning. And as you've already mentioned in your prayer, my wife's sorry she couldn't be here. She has a sister who has cancer and was in for consultation last Friday. And a brother-in-law that's got to go in uh, tomorrow. And there may be some very serious things he has to learn. And uh, so she's with them in Pennsylvania. But uh, my oldest grandson stood in for her this morning. I appreciate that. But it's a delight uh, to, to know this congregation and its influence in this community. Uh, when I used to work at a halfway house, this church was the largest contributor because we were working with those that sometimes had the greatest needs. And uh, you have been, in many ways, a lighthouse. And we're going to talk about the importance of influence this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn to the second chapter of Chronicles, I mean, to the second book of Chronicles, seventh chapter. And we'll take a look there. And uh, as we do, let us again unite our hearts in prayer. Oh, Father, we've invited you to come, and we recognize without your coming, we're not adequate to do the job, cannot do the job. So we hope, Father, that we hear from you this morning. Father, we pray that you would now let the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart be receptive to you and your word. Oh, God, you're our strength and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. It was good to hear from your pastor this, this week and realize that he has uh, got a new one uh, coming on for Broadway and uh, that uh, he was willing to share the pulpit. Now, I think he probably shared the pulpit because he realized None of us speakers are complete failure. They are those of us that serve bad examples. And uh, we make them appreciate their pastor more. But at any rate, <laughs> at any rate, it's a delight to be with you. As we look to that scripture, I think there's some things that uh, we will glean from that. Some of them are not explicitly stated, but implied, and I think it helps us bring a balance to our life. Well, it begins when Solomon had ended his prayer. Fire came down from heaven and consumed the sacrifices and the burnt offering. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter into the temple because the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And when the children of Israel saw the fire from heaven and the glory of the Lord, they fell on their faces to the ground upon the pavement and praised and worshiped God and said, Glory to God, for his mercy endureth forever. And the king and the people made sacrifices unto God. 
And King Solomon offered a sacrifice of 22,000 bullocks, 120,000 sheep. And the king and the people dedicated the house of the Lord. And the priests waited for their ministry. And likewise, the Levites with instruments of music that the King David had made to praise the Lord because his mercy endureth forever. And when they offered praise by their instruments, the priests across from them sounded trumpets. And all Israel stood. And Solomon hallowed the middle of the court that was in front of the temple. For there he offered burnt offerings and the fat of peace offerings and grain offerings. For the bronze altar that Solomon had built was not adequate, could not contain all of the meat and the sacrifice and the grain offerings. At the same time, they celebrated the feast, and all Israel with him, a great congregation from the entering end of Hamath to the brook or river in Egypt. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly, where they celebrated the sacrifice of the temple seven days and the feast seven days. And on the twenty and third day of the seventh month, he sent the people to their tents, glad and merry in heart for the goodness that God had shown unto David and Solomon and to Israel, his people. And Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's house and everything that came into Solomon's heart to do to the house of God and to his own house. He successfully accomplished. And the Lord came to Solomon by night and said, I have heard your prayers and I have chosen this place as a house of sacrifice. If I shut up heaven and there's no rain, or if I send locusts to devour the crops, or if I send pestilence among the people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear all the way from heaven. I will forgive their sins and I will heal their land. For now I have chosen and sanctified this house that my name may be there forever. And my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. As for you, if you'll follow my commandments and observe my statutes, I will establish the covenant 
that I made with your father David, there shall not fail thee a man to be ruler of Israel. But if you turn away and don't do the things I've commanded, and don't observe my statutes, and seek out other gods and serve them, then will I pluck them up by the roots out of this land. And this house which was exalted, I'll make it a proverb and a byword, so that everyone that passes by will be astonished and say, Why has God done this to this house and to this land? And it will be answered, Because they forsook the God of their fathers who brought them out of Egypt and served and worshiped other gods. Therefore hath he brought this calamity upon them. Now, I think it's real important for us to recognize that there is a balance in the Christian life. And while some of these things are not explicitly stated, I think at least there are three or four principles that we can look for that establish balance in those passages. It's important for us to recognize the difference between influence and force, or influence and cause. This church, as much as any church I know, was born understanding those things. And I think even until today, you manifest it in a very good way. As I understand it, Brother Bob went to speak with the mayor each year when they were elected and asked them if he could have prayer for them. And it was at that occasion that he experienced what he referred to as the Macedonian call. Many churches who are called to be salt and light were moving out of the inner city. And he recognized there was a need to come to the inner city and for this church to be salt and light. Because salt has a preserving effect upon the community. And light has an influencing effect upon the community. Many times, as I'm working with people that have experienced a lot of heartaches in life, I mentioned Broadway Christian Church, and the attitude seems to change. Because you still have a testimony of influencing this community, salt and light. I think of different members that I know of this that are influences wherever you are. I think of the influence at the Y of the SOCAP. I think of the influence in the fire department. I think of the influence in the halfway houses that continues till the day. And each one is located in a place where their influence makes a difference. It doesn't force change, but it influences change. 
And in this passage, the promise is that if we will fulfill our responsibility, it will influence change. And so there is a relationship between influence and cause. Now, if we thought we could cause change, there are a lot of people we would cause to change. <laughs> Many of them sometimes in our own family, and uh, they probably play the same thing about us. But we can't blame when a person is an influence and others don't follow that influence. We're called to be an influence. And you see the influence throughout this chapter. And he's promised if we claim proper influence, he will make the difference. He, not us. There's a difference between influence and force. There's a difference and a balance that must occur between individual and corporate worship. Because we have an individual responsibility. Sometimes our nation emphasizes individual freedom to the point that we don't recognize our corporate responsibility. And sometimes in our own lives, we tend to our own business and don't recognize as a member of God's church the corporate responsibility we have to this community. And so it's real important that we... You see that in this passage, didn't you? There was an individual responsibility that he put upon Solomon. As for you, you do this, and I'll do this. And you see that. But there was also a corporate responsibility. You know, every movement you've often heard begins with a man or an individual. But sometimes we forget that movement didn't occur if it stopped with that individual. There was a corporate responsibility that people felt. And so it's important for us to recognize we have an individual responsibility, but we have a corporate responsibility to each other as believers. Amen? If you can't say amen, say oh me. Uh, <clears throat> And so that balance is important. And it's important because our sins do not just affect us. I attend AA fairly regularly. And almost every time that I hear a lead given, I'm reminded of the fact that their sins did not just adversely affect them. But it, in fact, affected wife and children and family. And when we sin, we don't sin unto ourselves. We impact our families, our community, 
our church. And we have to recognize that there's, now, there's also an individual hook there. And that is that though we feel the pain because another person's unselfishness, God's promise to us individually is that nobody can take us away from the love of God without our cooperation. We can't go and blame somebody else for some of the strongest characters you ever see survived out of adverse circumstances. Adversity, when responded to appropriately, strengthens character. That doesn't mean we want to bring more adversity. But we have to claim the promise individually that whatever happens to me, if I'll trust God, someone else cannot prevent God working in my life. They can influence us. And so I have to recognize whether I will walk through that pain or transmit it. Pain will almost always result in the fact that you either walk through it and grow from it or transmit it to everybody that cares about you. Because if in your hurt, hurting people hurt people. And if in your hurt, you turn away from God, you'll hurt others. But if through your hurt, you trust God, you will influence others. And so it's real important for us to recognize the relationship between individual and the balance between individual and corporate. A third factor that's there is the relationship between rights and responsibilities. One of the leading causes, I think, of deterioration in our nation, in our community, and in our individual churches is because we fail to recognize the relationship between rights and responsibilities. We have a right as a Christian to call ourselves the child of God. And we have a responsibility to God to live up to that name. And one without the other puts a lie to the other. There must be that balance between our right and our responsibility. Now, when I focused totally on right and was rebelling against God, I don't know that I set a record, but I was above average. I played football for Liberty High School. Our cross-county rivalry was easily our cross-conference uh, rivalry was Walhalla, and I made all three jails first year out of high school. But I never went to jail that I couldn't argue about my rights had I taken care of my responsibility I never would have went to jail how many of the national 
arguments that we hold today is a failure to acknowledge the relationship between rights and responsibility. If gun owners recognize their responsibility, we wouldn't have to argue about gun rights. If young men recognize their responsibility to authority, we wouldn't have to worry about their rights. And one of the most disintegrating parts of our community is when there's no correlation between rights and responsibility. There's no balance between them. I think in this passage you find a relationship between rights and responsibilities. And so it's real important to recognize. And the fourth thing we find is there is a balance between unconditional love and conditions demanded by love. We hear a lot of talk about unconditional love today. But I want to tell you that God's love is rarely, if ever, without conditions. That may astound some of you. Read John 3.16. Now, God unconditionally loves everybody. But for you to experience that love, there is a condition. Am I right or wrong? I had a friend that was head of one of the missions in Indianapolis. And he said, we had a guy there one day. He said, I'm not going to chapel because I'm an atheist. You can't make me go to chapel. He said, well, sir, I suppose what you need to do is find you an atheist mission. <laughs> Real important for us to recognize that relationship and that there are conditions related to God's love. I have a right to claim Forgiveness. Is there any condition to that? Our Lord gave us a model of prayer. And in that model of prayer, there was a condition. God, I want you to forgive me the same way I ain't going to forgive nobody else. Is that what it says? Forgive me of my trespasses the same way I forgive other people of theirs. Mm. Rights are married to responsibilities. And we cannot forsake one and give obedience to the other. When I get to that place, I don't know about you, but there's not a grudge sticking in my craw once I get to that place. Because God has forgiven me for far more than anything I've got to forgive. And furthermore, if God halfway forgives me, I'm still in deep trouble. So there's nothing I can't turn loose of 
when I go to the Lord's Prayer. Now, the, the one verse, although you see throughout the Scripture, if you will, I will, there must be a blending. God's love often requires our cooperation. And we cannot claim all the promises without cooperating. And so he says, if my people. So who is given the responsibility here? God's people. That is, those who profess faith in Jesus Christ. We try to lay our responsibilities at other people's feet. If we're Republicans, we lay it on the Democratic president and the Democratic Senate. If we're Democrats, we lay it on the Republican House. If they would just do so-and-so, if they would just do so-and-so, no, no. The promise wasn't to the House of Representatives. The promise wasn't to the senators. The promise wasn't even to the Supreme Court or to the president. The promise is to who? God's people. So if we want to see our nation reformed, the, the book stops here. With each of us claiming God's promise, and it rests with us who are called by my name. That is, if I call myself a Christian, there's a responsibility with that right. Will humble themselves. Mm, we don't hear a lot of humility, and unfortunately, we don't live a lot of humility today. You ever heard anybody pray? Now, God, I want you to humble me. No, no, you don't want that. God humbled Sodom and Gomorrah. What does the promise say? If we will humble ourselves and recognize before God our need. And pray. Now, how should we pray? There are many different ways we should pray, but prayer should include adoration. We have a God who we adore. We saw that in the music this morning, didn't we? A tremendous adoration. When you go to pray, does it include and begin with adoration? Acts is a good example. Adoration. Consecration. God wants us to renew our consecration to Him and to prayer. Thanksgiving. Is thanksgiving a centerpiece of our prayer? And then finally, supplication. My corporate responsibility to pray for others. Now, too often we get our prayer out of balance, do we not? We just go for supplication and we're through. God, bless my wife and 
my two kids and me, us four no more, amen. We uh, talk about our own individual needs, but we need to adore God. We need to confess and pray for concentration. We need to be thankful. Oh, how much do we have to be thankful for? You see, sometimes our supplication is we're praying to get God on our side. But if we pray appropriately, we pray until we get on God's side. And so if my people will pray, the fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And so our prayer should include those elements, and we should pray regularly. And seek my face. How do we seek God's face? Not just in prayer, but in his word we find his portrait. We find his plan. And so, as we pray, we also must study the word. Now, it's real important for us to recognize that sometimes what was a blessing becomes a curse. God's law was a blessing because it told us how to live. But we sometimes take it down and piece by piece insist on how others live. Or we decide we'll try to live up to the law. That's like taking a mirror down and trying to wash your face with it. God's purpose of the law was to reveal to us our need that every mouth might be stopped and that the whole world might become guilty before God. But we get into legalism. Instead of recognizing what we need to do here in the Word. I remember as a kid, legalism was so prevalent. I remember a song. You can relax. I'm not going to sing it for you, but I'll tell you some of the words. This train is headed for the glory. Don't carry nothing but the righteous and the holy. This train. This train don't carry no jokers, snuff dippers, or tobacco smokers. And with such a self-righteous spirit, it was sung. And the ones that put the emphasis on dress in those days, this train don't carry no message. Bobbed-haired women in knee-high dresses. <laughs> well, the law was given that each of us might recognize our need and might turn to Christ in faith. And so he says, we need to seek his face. And we find his portrait in the word. Now, we don't worship the word. We worship the Lord of the word. It's possible to memorize the word 
and not allow the word to make a difference in your life. The important thing is that we find his portrait when his words are hidden in our heart that we may not sin against him. And so it's important to pray. It's important to get ourselves into the word. And as we try to master the word, we'll find that the word must master us. And then the biggie, don't leave this out. Turn from your wicked ways. It's kind of like one famous speaker. And they were arguing over all of the things in the Scripture that I don't understand. And his reply was, it's not what I don't understand in the Scripture that bothers me. It's what I understand. It's not what we don't understand in the Scripture that really bothers us. It's what we understand and don't do. And so as we pray and as we follow this promise and claim revival in our community, it's important that we let God examine us and take the wickedness out of our life. Turn from our wicked ways. You see, remorse is not enough. Judas Iscariot felt remorse. Peter let sorrow lead to repentance. It's not enough just to be remorseful of our sins because it's easier to feel guilty than to change. And what he's saying is when the Holy Spirit convicts you, change. Let God change your life. He says, if you will do these things, I'll hear from heaven, all the way from heaven. I'll forgive your sins, and I'll heal your land. This church has been a lighthouse on the hill in this community. I think most of you would agree with me that we have a nation, we have a community that many times disintegrates in morality. Am I right? And the promise and the responsibility for influence and change rests with us. I wonder this morning, if God has spoken to you and you say, I need to renew my commitment to be light and salt, to be an influence, to pray not just for my own needs, but for this community and to continue to reach out.